Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. The most comprehensive coverage of the world's greatest motor race anywhere on the planet. This is Haggerty Radio Le Mans. Convergence. Interesting word, isn't it? But what does it mean as far as the global sports car community is concerned? And does it mean different things to different people? Well, that's what we're going to explore in the next hour or so here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans. Hello, I'm John Heintoff. Coming up, uh, we'll have representatives from manufacturers who have committed and are already racing, including at this year's Le Mans. People who have committed and decided where they're going to be racing in the future. And from outside the LMH or LMDH community, a privateer from the LMP2 world. That's all to come, but let's start off with Toyota. One of the first manufacturers to commit to the new LMH hypercar regulations. Pascal Vassalon joins us now from Le Mans. Pascal, I know it's a very busy time for you. Thank you for making the time to speak to us here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans. Before we talk about convergence, um, how's your preparation gone? Are you ready? Are you where you want to be? I think we have no choice if we are not ready now. <laughs> something would have gone wrong in our program. So, no, definitely we are uh, ready uh, as uh, good as possible, I would say, considering our uh, circumstances, which are essentially that we are running uh, a totally new car. And obviously this comes together with some additional difficulties. But that's business as usual. Let's go back to basics here, Pascal, and let our listeners know how... Toyota Gazoo Racing arrives with the package that is the GRO 10. What was the decision-making process that you all had to go through at Toyota, looking at the LMH hypercar regulations and making the practical and engineering decisions that evolved into what we see as the rather beautiful GRO 10? Okay, the genesis of the GRO 10 development is a long and complicated story, let's say, because uh, we have been there from the start. What I mean that we have been part of the early discussions to shape uh, the future regulation in the one we have at the moment. And GRO 10 development has actually started uh, during 2018. Uh, if you remember well, the first set of new regulation has been validated in December 18. So this is really at that time that uh, we started the development of GRO10. And then we went through a long uh, story of, I would say, direction changes in terms of regulation for, for understandable and good reason. But yeah, we have had at least two um, significant change of direction. And every time we have had somehow to, to reorientate a bit our, um, our concept and we, we've done it the best we could. Uh, but every time, yeah, generating... Um, some difficulties on the way. So it has been yeah, a long and difficult sto- story, the development of Girotin. When those uh, original regulations came out, that was the only game in town. Subsequently, LMDH, which we haven't seen cars for yet, yes. has been added 
to the mix. Is that a complicating factor? Your decision's pretty much already made at Toyota Gazoo Racing. Um, but does it make you, as a group, look and say, kind of wish we'd known that before? Actually, uh, the complication came before LMDH because already in 2019, we had to add to the regulation and another option, which was at the time, the possibility to race a road hypercar-based car. So this had happened in 19, and if you remember well, it was pushed like people like Aston Martin and so on. So already at that time, we had introduced a second option to join the hypercar category, uh, everything being... Uh, ruled by a balance of performance. But the, the second option was already there. Then, when the LMDH uh, option came, it was just about adding a third option. So it was not complicated at all because somehow we had the shell, uh, the regulatory shell, to accept this new option. And then it has not added any complexity. It was already there. The other question uh, was... Uh, would Toyota have preferred, uh, because it was already in the pipeline since quite a long time, and clearly LMDH doesn't tick our boxes for several uh, reasons. One of them being that uh, we want to run our own hybrid system. For us, uh, our mandate in racing is to develop technology and to prove it in racing. So we have to develop our own technology. So for this reason, our choice was very straightforward and would not have changed even if made later in time, we would still have committed to LMH hybrid because this is what ticks all Toyota boxes, uh, the reason why we are there somehow. Am I right in saying, Pascal, that unlike many other car manufacturers, automotive manufacturers, the the Toyota racing budget um, isn't from or is it totally from marketing it's it's much more from research and development from road car so that kind of underlines what you got you've just said there about looking for real world benefit and racing to learn and racing to develop exactly in the end okay it would come whether it comes from technical department or marketing in the end it comes from the same pocket but it's true that our mandate is technology driven we are asked to develop sustainable technology and to prove it in racing. And, and it's not a marketing exercise. Let's say for Toyota, racing at Le Mans, racing in endurance is not a marketing exercise. It's a technological exercise. And, and having said that then, and made that point, when the decision was made to go with the engineering solutions that you have on the GRO10, the size and configuration of the engine... The which there was some flexibility on um, how you managed the hybrid system. Of course, you had a lot of uh, a lot of experience with the previous iteration of the the LMP1H uh, regulations. But were those solutions or choices that you had to make were there were they fairly straightforward or was there a little bit of of backwards and forwards? Because you have gone up in the cubic capacity on the on the engine for the car. I would say most of our technical decisions have been somehow straightforward based on our experience in the category. Nevertheless, we have redesigned every single part and assembly in the car 
just because the regulation change was uh, very, very important. Uh, and this is why, still based on our previous experience, we have changed the capacity of the, of the engine simply because it had to deliver more power and uh, in a, within a regulation frame which requires even more reliability than before. Then the hybrid system has been redesigned because this time we have only an hybrid system on the front axle. And as well, one of the targets we had together with the regulatory body is to reduce the cost of the category. So uh, it was as well one reason to redesign most of the item is that we have made the car cheaper to produce, cheaper to manufacture. You said cheap like I said cheap. We actually mean less yeah. expensive, don't we? Because more sport is, is right. never yeah. cheap. <laughs> You and I have been around a very long time in this business. Uh, you have a huge amount of experience. On a personal level, I'm asking you here on a personal level, when we heard that announcement at Daytona a couple of Januaries ago that the world of IMSA and the world of the ACO was coming together for global convergence, did you honestly think you would see that in, in your lifetime? Uh, I would say all what has been done uh, in terms of regulation engineering, there was one major target, which was to bring competitors to the series. This has been really the, the dominating factor. Uh, and then when the convergence has been announced for us, it, it was really a very good news because it was uh, the first achievement of the set of regulation we have, we have been participating to the elaboration. So definitely it was a very good news. Um, I don't know if I was, I was somehow expecting it because it was making sense. We knew that there were still difficulties on the way, there were still a few roadblocks, but it was making so much sense that we were expecting it somehow, or hoping for it and expecting it. And from Toyota Gazoo Racing's point of view, Toyota is a, glo- is a global manufacturer, one that can honestly say that. It has cars that are sold in pretty similar forms literally all over the world. One of not very many manufacturers who can make make that claim. The opportunity to go and race at the Rolex 24 Daytona, Sebring, Mobile One at 12 hours, Petit Le Mans, Road Atlanta for the Motul race there. Is that medium and longer term, is that something that, that Toyota and Gazoo Racing then are drawn to? I would say at the moment, we are clearly focusing on, uh, on the work. Nevertheless, when this kind of opportunity, the one, the, the one you have listed, when this kind of opportunities arise, uh, of, obviously we are considering it because it would make sense uh, in many ways to, to participate to those races. So our program at the moment, it's a WEC, but definitely we are looking at uh, possibilities and ways to, uh, to participate to all these very big endurance races you have listed. The other side of the convergence um, from both, I think, the ACO and IMSA's point of view is, of course, bringing bringing in the manufacturers like Toyota, like Toyota Gazoo Racing, but an opportunity for, for private teams. Again, I think back to the private teams being really the mainstay of particularly the Le Mans uh, 24 back down through the years. 
can you see a position that you might be in as Toyota Gazoo Racing that there could be opportunities for private ears with the GRO 10? Or is it simply going to be a works programme? And if so, what is the thinking behind that? At the moment, our programme is designed as a, as a factory programme. Uh, we may in the future consider to, to expand it a bit, but I don't think we would ever do it I would say we would uh, kick off a customer program on the scale of what we hear from some of the future uh, competitors. So at the moment, it's a factory-driven program. We may expand it, but it will never be a large-scale customer program. And and is that down to the complexity of the car, the fact that there's proprietary information in there, Pascal? What's What's the rationale behind that? I would say it's probably the main thing is that yeah, we are here to develop and improve technology. And this, you can't do it as a factory team. It's very difficult to, to do it effectively through a lot of customer teams. But it's, again, it's work ongoing and uh, we, we are constantly analyzing the opportunities offered to us. So uh, for sure, we will keep an eye on uh, the opportunities given by your customer program. And looking further forward to when we have... Uh, more manufacturers in both LMH and LMDH. Are you confident that the four pillars of the balance of performance that were announced by ACO, FIA and and IMSA for competition in uh, both under both of their series umbrellas, are you confident that they will deliver good racing for us and fair racing for you as a competitor and an entrant? Okay, there has been a lot of uh, work done on this topic. We have had series of technical working group to handle this. So we have to say that it will work. It's a lot of resources and energy has been put on uh, an effective BOP process. So at this moment in time, uh, we, we can only say it should tick the boxes. Uh, the, the way I read it, it, it looks... And I think it's, I have to say, I think it's eminently sensible. One of the most sensible things I've seen coming out of motorsport at this level, that if you are um, in the WEC, your cars, uh, even if you're only in the WEC, your cars have to be submitted uh, for four, for these four pillars that we've talked about. And you will be balanced between yourselves in LMH. If you are in IMSA um, and you want to take your car over to IMSA, whether you're in LM. A DH or a, a WEC and a LMH, then your cars are, uh, are then BOP'd over there. That could lead, could it not, to competitors racing in WEC under one set of BOP and in IMSA under a slightly different set of BOP for the same vehicle? Uh, it could be. Nevertheless, if everything works as expected, the windows should be very, very similar because everything has been made to keep all these cars in the same performance window. So we should be only talking about fine-tuning. So in the end, there may be some differences between the two series, but it should not be big differences. Second order should be only second order adjustments. I'm very excited about the next few years. Um, Toyota never shirk a challenge, and Gazoo Racing has never been backwards in coming forwards. They came into the WEC earlier than they were planning to, to make sure that that series could continue. What is what is the feeling and the attitude within Toyota Gazoo Racing as you look 
even beyond this year. I'll come to Le Mans in a moment, but beyond this year and looking forward towards 2023 and beyond. Yeah, we we are, I would say, amazed about what's going on and the perspective to have eight, nine, maybe ten competitors fielding several cars in 23 is just, just amazing. And uh, we are just trying to get prepared for this challenge because for us, it's, it's a new challenge. Uh, the category is ruled by a BOP, so we have to learn about this because we have been used, I would say, to a, to a performance development war. Uh, and now it has to be a bit different. So, yeah, we are uh, fascinated by what comes ahead. The level, uh, uh, the quality, the quantity of the competitors we will have, and we just try to get prepared. Is it an advantage or a disadvantage that you guys were in first? Clearly, you're gaining experience. You're running the car right now, but that is a homologation that is is fixed for five years. Some of your competitors are have are going to have extra time to assess the category and maybe come in with different ideas. Yeah, you could see it either way. You could see it as an advantage to be ready early because you have time to get prepared. You could see it as a handicap to uh, uh, to have had to decide, make decisions, commitment early. We are working at making sure we get an advantage from it somehow. Uh, we are trying to make sure that uh, the benefit in terms of experience we will gather before the others are coming will give us an advantage. This is our commitment. That's a little way ahead. We have Le Mans and the 24 hours in August. It could be very hot. Europe in the midst of a heat wave at the moment. Where are the challenges going to be at your next race? Because I know that's where the focus always is. The next race is where your heads have to be. What are you looking at in particular uh, for Le Mans 2021? Uh, the key thing for us behind Le Mans is uh, 24, 2, 4. These are the two. Uh, uh, this is really what uh, creates a challenge, especially when you operate a new car. So we've done quite a lot of testing. We went through our usual process. It went well. Nevertheless, we have still seen some unexpected issues popping up uh, here and there. We have fixed them, but you have always a question mark, which next unexpected issue could, could come up? And for sure, during 24 hours, you have many more chances or risks, let's say, to have something unexpected happening. So this is our challenge. We are prepared. We have fixed all the issues we have had. Some of them were minor. Some of, uh, it's all fixed. It's all very promising. But we are lucid. We know that many, many additional problems can pop up during 24 hours. And the mere fact that Le Mans adds that complication of 24 hours, I always think makes Le Mans interesting, whatever the situation. Um, only a, a small amount of competitors in your own class this year, Pascal, but with the comparative pace we expect to see from LMP2, um, there's, there's still plenty of competition there this year, as well as the clock and the circuit. Exactly. Considering the, the very small performance gap between LMP2 and Hypercar, we can consider that uh, we have a lot more than the, the three competitors which are officially listed because, yeah, we will have a very small performance buffer to the LMP2s. And, uh, for example, we could, with uh, the performance gap we have at the moment, considering that you have so many 
top-level LMP2, high-level LMP2, that you will always have one or two of them which go through the race without issue, then you could uh, say that Le Mans 14, for example, or Le Mans 17, would have, won, would have been won by an LMP2. I'm referring here to races where the winner has spent uh, more than 20 minutes in the pits. And for sure this year, if we spend more than 20 minutes in the pits, we will not win. So definitely, we have, this year we have a specific additional challenge with the LMP2s. We will always keep an eye on them. No pressure then, Pascal. No pressure at all, particularly for the guys oh, who are in the pit. Pressure as usual. <laughs> and you guys live for it. You guys Yeah, live. exactly. We will know precisely how long we can afford in the pits without risking I, I, I kind of expect to see now a big clock in the at the back of the Toyota Gazoo <laughs> Racing with time spent in pits. Yes. Count, <laughs> counting, counting down. Pascal, thank you very much for your time. Bye, Pascal. Thank you. Goodbye. Just 20 minutes then before Toyota Gazoo Racing are looking over their shoulders at LMP2 cars for the 2021 Le Mans 24 hours. Extraordinary number revealed there by Pascal Vassalon of Toyota Gazoo Racing. Still to come on this Convergence special here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans, not the manufacturers, but the privateers, very much in the conversation for the future of global prototypes. And later in the show, we'll be speaking with Sam Hignett of Jota, one of the most successful LMP2 teams of recent times. But before that, we've spoken to a manufacturer who are in and competing this year. What about those who are coming and what about the LMDH side of things, the IMSA version of global prototypes? Pascal Zerlinden, another Pascal, Pascal Zerlinden from Porsche Motorsport joining us now here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans. Pascal, uh, convergence to come, LMDH to come, but also a Le Mans 24 hours just around the corner. Now, how's your preparation been going? At the end, Le Mans is always coming too quickly. If you had more time, you would prepare more. But uh, looking back at the last 12 months in the last Le Mans, I think all the, everyone did a great job and we are ready and looking forward to the coming weekend. It's been GT, of course, that has been taking up all of your time with the new 992 Cup cars, supplying your customers with the RSR 19, including in the, the GTE AM this year. And my goodness, you've got a lot of work on your plate uh, this, this weekend uh, for that, Pascal, with a huge number of RSRs at Le Mans. This year we have 12 RSR at the start in Le Mans, which is quite an impressive field, to be honest. And also a lot of work for also all our customer support. Because uh, next to our two uh, works cars, 91-92, are fighting for the World Championship title in GTE Pro. We have two customer cars who want to show our works team that they are the slowest and the customer cars the quickest. So it will be an interesting one. And also nice battles with two great crew, with the WeatherTech crew, with Bantor, the 2019, uh, 2019 champions, IMSA champions, but also probably the Maurice Schenker, the Alberto car, with uh, Dries Vantor, Farente, and Martin Martin, who won here last year. So also quite an impressive crew. I think we are, 
We will have quite a great battle already internally between the Porsche in GT Pro and um, eight more cars in GT Am. Quite a great field, to be honest. Now, Pascal, your your focus clearly for Le Mans 2021 is on the GT cars, but it is not that long before Porsche returned to the top level of a global prototype racing with a new set of regulations and a set of regulations from IMSA, a set of regulations from the ACO and the uh, and the FIA for the WEC that aren't the same, but that give manufacturers the option of going one side or the other, but then coming together in what's been called convergence. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Um, First of all, first principles, LMDH uh, with uh, Porsche. What was the rationale behind the decision to go to that set of regulations rather than LMH, which is what some of your competitors are going to be doing at Le Mans and in the World Endurance Championships? Back in, uh, in 2020, in December, when we took the decision to go for LMDH, there are a few rationals behind. One is cost-driven. Definitely having one set of regulation with also common parts controls the cost and you can run on both championship, WSC and IMSA. And on the second end, with the LMDH regulation, as they are written, you can also see customers running these cars because they are not as complex as LMH cars can be. And this is definitely one of the big points which we underlined to go for the LMDH regulation. And how soon do you feel, we've been talking about all your customers at Le Mans this year, how soon do you feel you'll be able to make customer cars available uh, to your Porsche uh, partner teams? If you look back at uh, all the announcements which were made in the press from Porsche side, our board members already said that from the first race in Daytona, you will see customers next to our works cars. Wow. And this is our target, and we are still in the timeline to do this. Pascal, the, the idea of LMDH is similar to what we see in IMSA right now with DPI. That is, taking one of the four manufacturers who build an LMP2 chassis and using that monocoque, that spine, as the basis of the manufacturer-supported and manufacturer-run racing cars. It's worked very well. For these new regulations, though, the new LMP2 chassis aren't actually out yet because the regulations have not been finalised. Is that a problem? Because right now, you don't have an LMP2 chassis from Multimatic to actually start working with. We are, we are all working really close together, all manufacturer, but also the LMP2 constructor about the rules. And rules are nearly fixed for the spine. And um, I think we are underway so that uh, probably in the next month at one point, there could be some sneak previews coming. As you know, end of the year, before Christmas, our target is to run the car the first time, meaning you can be sure that uh, our partner, Multimatic, He's working really hard to get the chassis finished by that time. 
So that means from when we were speaking uh, at the end of, of last year after after the announcement. So all of the main... I'm not asking for any trade secrets here, Pascal. I, I, I know I know that you wouldn't give me any anyway. But, but does that mean that all of the major decisions about the engine size and configuration have already had to be made? Definitely, Adzem. If you look at the timeline, when if you want to have a rollout end of this year, everything had to be decided in the last months already. And we are on the way to finalizing uh, already the design and not the concept. Concept is done. <laughs> I'm sure you would, all would like to know which engine we are running, but I have to disappoint you. It's not the right time for a communication on this point. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure once we, we know, we will all nod very sagely and understand how the, the decision ha- has been made. Um, in, in terms of competing in both IMSA and the FIA WEC, which is definitely Porsche's aim, um, they have uh, brought back to Porsche Prototype Racing, Roger Penske's organisation. Uh, we've seen them be very successful in IMSA in the past. They're going to be involved with the WEC and the World Championship and therefore the Le Mans side of it as well. Two, uh, two different I suppose you would say uh, philosophies from LMDH to LMH and a set of four cornerstones or pillars of balance of performance, equalisation of of technology, which to me, I'm not a technical person, Pascal, you know that, but to me looks very sensible and looks like it will provide the level playing field. What, What are your thoughts and Porsche's thoughts on how the two different series have come together with those four pillars? Now, what is really impressive, I have to say, during the last month is the work of the manufacturers if they are entering LMDH or LMH regulation, but we all work together with ACO, IMSA, and FIA to make sure we have fair racing for 2023. And this not only in WEC, also in IMSA, giving also the possibility to LMH manufacturer to go to IMSA. And what was decided and what was published after the last World Council is quite impressive because we are there. We are now to a point where nearly fair racing is guaranteed from 2023 with probably up to 10 manufacturers or even more competing for the overall win in Le Mans, but also in IMSA at one point, which is which is really impressive, to be honest. And we're all all involved. We can all be really proud of what's happening and what's coming. It seems to me that uh, it's a very sensible and practical way to go about it, that if anybody wants to race in the WEC, whether it's only in the WEC or whether it's there and somewhere else, then there is... Uh, the the wind tunnel uh, at Sauber, there is a balance of performance using Aero and the three other cornerstones. And similarly in IMSA, it will be wind shear up in Carolina and the three other pillars as well. Does that, however, mean, Pascal, that Penske, uh, the two different sides of Penske, could be running slightly different BOPs for IMSA and for the WEC, because those championships will balance within their championships, not necessarily across both championships exactly. To answer this question, I can probably bring an example which makes it easy to understand. 
Every racetrack has its own characteristic. Le Mans, you will not find in the IMSA Championship. But if you go to Daytona, it's also something really special. You will not find, find it in WC. And this, this shows that the BOP normally they can't be the same in both championships. You will have differences. It's not because of the teams, of the drivers. It's also because of the racetrack, which are really specific on each championship. Yeah, great answer. Very good answer and something that I think will make a lot of sense to everybody, including non-technical people like me. Thank you for that, Pascal. A couple of, couple of final questions uh, on, uh, on the future, the excitement that you and I and I think all enthusiasts have for the, the, the future. It's, it looks very much, or at least it's been proposed, that IMSA um, might put a special race on at the end of the 2022 season, much as they did when Michelin came on board as the new tyre supplier. We called it the uh, sports car Encore at Sebring at, uh, at the end uh, of that season and before Michelin came in to the championship as the total tyre supplier. Is that something, if that race happened, is that something that you feel you would be ready for as Porsche and Penske at the end of the championship season, at the end of next year, 2022? And is it something you'd like to do? And then looking at uh, how you can test and be prepared for a season, if you can go racing as a final test before you start the season, this could be something we need to evaluate. But to do this, we would have to be ready. And this is something we need to look at in the next months after the rollout. There's not a lot of time, Pascal, is there? I mean, time disappears very quickly. And, and Daytona 2023 is, is not that far away. Nah, definitely. At the end, everyone looks at it as it's uh, in the calendar year. We're 2021 now, and it's two calendar years. But no, it's uh, like, uh, I would say, every single week until that race is planned at the moment. Every single part which is coming, every single rig testing or track testing, everything is really planned. And we have not to forget that we are still racing in GTE next year. Good point. And so we have some parallel programs. Yeah, very, very good point. There's a whole extra conversation that you and I need to have about GTE and GT racing. Looking forward to a new set of regulations there as well. But that is for another time. Final question, and this is something that at the moment is specific to the Volkswagen AG brands in uh, in LMDH because we've not yet seen any other manufacturer split between two different brands. Um, are we going to be able to tell a Porsche LMDH run by Penske and an Audi LMDH run by whatever their partner teams? Are we going to be able to tell them apart? We're very used to seeing platform sharing in the automotive world and even to a certain extent, Audi and Lamborghini, of course, in, in GT3. We're not as used to seeing it in, in quote-unquote, the prototype world. What can you tell us that, that will make us uh, Porsche fans and Porsche enthusiasts, or indeed those on the Audi side who support the four rings, be able to absolutely say, right, it's not just a different colour, I can see the differences there, it looks different or it sounds different. What can you tell us about how that's going to work? Speaking about the, um, things, the Volkswagen Group with Porsche and Audi entering, you can be sure that our, the design engineers, the stylists of both brands are working really hard to make sure you recognize the car, even without logo or without the stickers, which was not always the case in prototype racing. But uh, with what is coming, without telling too much, you will recognize it.
Right. Okay. I like that. Uh, and on a personal level, and we'll close with this, uh, Pascal. Thank you, first of all, for your time. Always enjoy talking to you. We wish you, of course, and your teams a safe and and prosperous Le Mans twenty twenty one. As Pascal Zerlinden, as an enthusiast involved in motorsport, are you excited about what we have? Not only this year, but looking further forward to that global prototype category coming in the next couple of years and then running for probably four or five years beyond that. Uh, as Pascal Zorlinden, I have to say, I'm uh, looking more than forward to this golden area of uh, endurance racing starting in 2023. And I think with so many manufacturers, this could be bigger than the 80s and 90s who all the legends are speaking about. So it could be a new legendary time for endurance racing. Thank you, Pascal, for talking to us. Thank you, and uh, have a good race also for all our fans. Well, here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans and our Convergence programme for 2021, we've heard then from a manufacturer in Toyota who are already here in LMH. We've heard from a manufacturer in Porsche with Pascal Zerlinden there who are coming to LMDH. So that kind of covers off the works and the OEMs, the manufacturer teams. There is a third group of entrance competitors who I think it's worthwhile to be represented here. And that's people who are already racing in prototypes as privateers in the LMP2 ranks. And to, to represent that, uh, that uh, constituency, if you will, delighted to welcome Sam Hignett from Jota, who joins us from Le Mans. Um, exciting times we are seeing, Sam, in terms of being enthusiasts and bringing all these potential 10, 12, however many manufacturers in to global prototype racing. There are some knock-on effects, though, surely, to LMP2, not least what I was talking about with Pascal is that the, the new LMP2 chassis doesn't exist yet and LMDH cars are already being built. How do you see that affecting you guys at Jota who are LMP2 front runners in the short term and in the longer term? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Johnny. It is a lot of unknown at the moment as to what's going to happen with LMP2. And when you just look at the numbers, the number of cars that could potentially be on the grid, you know, the, the question has to be raised, is there room even for LMP2 to fit on the grid in the future, which is exciting. Um, whilst it does, you know, if we look at the longer term, first of all, so 23, 24 onwards, if there isn't room for LMP2 on the grid, it does preclude a few customers who might not be able to stomach the gap between the cost of an LMP2 season and the cost of an LMDH season. But overall, it's a very exciting proposition. And if these LMDH and LMD cars are, are um, balanced in the way that we are told they will be balanced, I think there's an opportunity for a private tier team to beat the factories. In the short term, remind me and the listeners, how long is this this current LMP2 formula? It now goes to the end of 2023. We're not expecting to see LMP 2.0 or Gen 2 or what LMP2 new uh, until 2024. That's been pushed back a year now for that introduction. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's right. So these the cars, the current Oracles, Ligiers, Delaris, they are eligible until the end of 2023, uh, which is good for the teams because, you know, all of us teams are so heavily invested in this capital. It's always a good thing to get a year's extension on it. Um, and with the uncertainty of how the landscape is going to pan out, it's also a benefit to us to have this reprieve and a bit more breathing time before we have to decide where we're going next. There are four current LMP2 manufacturers and they'll carry forward into the new formula some, but really speaking, everybody's graduating towards the best one. That's what motor racing is about. That's Orica. I don't think we've really ever seen a customer Riley Stroke Multimatic. I think there was one that ran in IMSA once. Um, Ligier have fought the good fight and, and, and had some decent results uh, as well. Delara, not not so much. So looking forward then, do you believe that there will be a spread of chassis for you to choose from if you're staying in LMP2 in 2024? I, I think that depends on the manufacturers, John, whether they want to come to the table and, and challenge you know, the, the might of Orica, who, are, who are, you know, we all know is the dominant force in this category. It's up to those manufacturers to step up to the plate. And, you know, it's very interesting in, in conversations we're having with, with manufacturers, you know, we've always been saying to them, don't underestimate how good this little car is. It is a brilliant, brilliant little racing car. And now, clearly, they're beginning to look closely at these cars and they're coming back to us and they're like, yeah, that Oracle is really good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's, let's not gloss over the fact here, whilst we're all racing enthusiasts and we love to see good competition and heavens above, LMP2 has provided that. Uh, it's very fine margins at the front of a, of a packed field, whether it's in WEC or, all right, a, a few uh, fewer cars in, in IMSA, but certainly here at Le Mans, mega. Um, but it's a business, Sam, and for you it's a business. So the business case for LMP2, strong, clearly, because you and other people are in it and have been in it for a while. How does that change with either 2024 LMP2 or is there an opportunity for you? We heard uh, uh, Pascal Vasselon saying... No Toyota LMH cars likely to make their way into private air hands, but very much customer racing part of, of Porsche and one would presume a few of the other LMDH manufacturers. How does that affect you in how you look at the business? Well, the, the, the business model doesn't change. It's got to be funded by customers. It's got to be funded by sponsorship. It's got to be funded by business-to-business deals. They're, they're the ones. So nothing... Nothing in that landscape changes. The big difference is there will be an increasing cost going into LMDH, but that comes with a huge increase in opportunity in that if this is policed in the way we're all told it's going to be policed by the technical guys, then there is every chance a privateer team can take the challenge to the factory teams. And, you know, going without going on too much of a tangent, I do think there is a real opportunity for a private team to challenge for outright wins at Le Mans in the future in, in the LMDH era, just because of freedom of drivers. You know, we wouldn't be, a private team wouldn't be constrained by existing drivers on their roster. You would have the pick of the bunch. 
which is, you know, given how a lot of these manufacturers are carrying brilliant, brilliant drivers, but who are maybe masters of a different discipline, that's a great opportunity. You have freedom of choice. The rate at which you can make decisions is much better. So I do think the private teams are going to be a force to be reckoned with in the future, which is exciting. Can I ask a cheeky question, Sam, and feel free to say, hand off, I'm not answering that. But when you, I don't need pounds, shillings and pence, so that dates me, doesn't it? I don't, I don't need exact numbers. But on percentage terms, and I know we're sort of crystal ball gazing at the moment. What's the difference between running an LMP2 car, do you feel, and, and what you're talking to some of the manufacturers and what you're hearing for the, some of the manufacturers to buy and run and have spare parts and all the attendant costs of an, of an LMDH, albeit on the same sort of, of chassis? And I'll come back to chassis in a moment. Well, I think we need to to break that down a little bit, John, because the acquisition of the car is going to be a big number. We know that. But again, it's a different proposition. With all due respect to Orica, my car collector doesn't know what an Orica is to a tube of toothpaste, but he does know what a Porsche is to a tube of toothpaste. So, yes, the fundamental asset is going to be a lot more expensive, but then there are a lot more investors out in the marketplace who are going to be prepared to spend the money to buy these cars. So that's one problem I hope solved. Coming to running costs, I think we're looking at about a 50 to 75% increase in running costs once we're into the seasons properly. What none of us know yet is the level of R&D that we need to do to get up and running in LMDH and be competitive. And our, you know, we're doing a lot of work in this in the background. You know, cards on the table, the least we would want to spend is 700,000 on R&D. And the last thing I saw from my engineering group was 1.8 million in R&D to get to the level of where we believe the manufacturers will start. So there's a, there's a chunk of money to be found there. The running cost isn't horrendous. Um, and as I said, the capital acquisition cost at the front end, I think, is easier than we're sat in currently. That, that's a very uh, interesting point that I have to say I had never considered at all, Sam. So, you know, yeah, very good. Very good. When you say R&D, these cars are all going to be homologated for five five years. So what are you talking about there? Because it's not as if you can necessarily tweak the air or, or um, machine some parts or anything like that. They, they're all fixed from from the manufacturer within the homologation. So so what are you talking about there? Getting the team up to speed, getting your processes up to speed? What what are we what are you thinking about spending that money on without giving away any trade secrets? No, no, no. So a, a chunk of it will be on track testing to run through the range of what this roll bar does, what this ride height does. And you know, John, we've done we have you know, with the Orica now, my engine bill from Gibson is at over a thousand hours that we've run these Oracles for. And still we're learning every time we run the car, we, we learn something. So, you know, if you're starting from a clean sheet of paper, there's a lot of work to do to verify all of the pressure sweeps and the roll bar sweeps and the spring rates and everything. So there's a chunk to be done there. Then you need to do your own internal R and D with a CFD program to check that, your understanding of the bodywork fit of the car and everything else is correct and all of those little bits and pieces and that's it's expensive stuff and that's where the R&D budget goes yeah understand understand now 
you talked about the cost there and potentially being able to uh, attract people because at the end of a programme, you're going to have a car that's won Le Mans or it's been on the podium at Le Mans or it's done something special at Sebring or, or Daytona. Um, how much is that global aspect interesting to you uh, at Jota and teams like you, of the size of you, of the uh, financial wherewithal uh, of of the privateer teams. Obviously, there's more cost if you go and race in another series, particularly if it's on a, another continent. But it gives you the opportunity to amortise the asset and, and use it more. It seems to me rather like GT3 racing. You could potentially cherry pick some other events. That interesting? Yeah, it, it's it's great. And, and, you know, when you look at the asset as an item on someone's balance sheet, then it is a great to be able to utilize it in lots and lots of different big events all over the world. Just the, the fact that the market, the residual, you know, the resale market for the thing is global at the end of the day is also a benefit. So, you know, coming back to the topic of conversation, convergence is a great, great thing in that sense. And I want to revisit chassis. I said I would, and my old brain has remembered it, which is unusual for me nowadays. We're in a situation um, that is 180 degrees different from where we started this concept. If you think of DPI now, DPI came from a current LMP chassis and then all the accoutrement, the engine, different suspension, different aero was added onto it. That was the idea for LMDH. But with the manufacturers and their development time, we've now got chassis builders like Multimatic, as we heard from Pascal Zerlinden from Porsche, who are well beyond concept through design and into proving now. So that car is big. That chassis is being built, Sam, to a manufacturer requirement not to an LMDH set of regulations, which we haven't even got yet. If you were to steer an LMP2 and use one of those chassis, does that worry you? Because that could be a compromise, surely. Yeah, it's concerning as to what the cost would be of that chassis in, in LMP2 format. Um, but at the moment, we don't know. We, we don't know, and we don't know... To how much further the manufacturers are taking the development of these chassis than, than where the current chassis are. So there's, there's probably too many unknowns right now to answer that. And I, you know, I'm cagey about it because, like I said earlier, I, I think these manufacturers are genuinely surprised at how good these LMP2 cars are and the level that they're being operated at currently. Is there, somebody suggested this to me the other day, and I kind of put it to one side, but talking to you now, is there potentially a case for the current Origa as the preeminent car in LMP2 to have its homologation extended because of the fact that so many of the, the, the other three manufacturers are going to be really busy building manufacturer cars for LMDH? They, they might, I mean, Delara, I don't think have got any plans to build the, the LMP2 car. They're, they're busy with BMW and probably and probably GM, uh, GM as well. Um, is is there a case to extend the current car's homologation for another couple of seasons and allow LMP2 officially to become a single manufacturer formula as it competitively is nowadays? Yes, I think it's something that needs to be looked at. Um, as an opportunity 
going forward because it's a big ask to ask these manufacturers to invest in all the tooling and R&D and everything to create new cars when there is an unknown. You know, when you look at the number of manufacturers coming in, where, you know, just look at Le Mans, potentially, where does LMP2 fit? You know, we've got 20 plus cars on the grid here for this weekend. In three or four years' time, if you've got that many LMDH cars, where's the room for LMP2 and what's the size of the market for LMP2? And then you end up in a situation how LMP2 is currently in Inter, which is good. You know, that's a great opportunity, a very different way of racing an LMP2 car. But is it is it fair for a, a single or multiple chassis manufacturers to be having a stab at such a small marketplace? That's a very good point. Very, very good point. Finish off with this, Sam. Everything that we've talked about, let's not get away from the fact that this is a great opportunity for the sport. Uh, perhaps some might say unusually, the two different sides of the argument, the FI and the WEC in Europe and IMSA in North America, have come to, I think, a very elegant and sensible four-pillar arrangement of, of balancing the cars within their series and within their rule set and from the other side, if, if you will. Does present an opportunity, and is it a is it a positive move in a, or everything that you're hearing in the manufacturer groups when you talk with other privateer teams? Notwithstanding some of the questions and unknowns that you've mentioned, yeah, it, it's a fantastic opportunity for everybody present in this paddock. In reality, the manufacturers, the private teams, you know, right now nobody knows what's going to happen. Now, I don't believe there's honestly a single team in this paddock that knows exactly where they're going to be in three years' time, exactly how it's going to happen in three years' time. But the beauty of this situation is there is enough cake to go around everybody. And so hopefully all of the teams will get a slice of the cake, be it in a factory guys, a semi-factory guys, a privateer guys. And if they control it the way they say they're going to control it, the private guys can go up against the factory guys. I can't have you on, Sam, without talking about uh, the reason we're at Le Mans this weekend, which is a 24-hour race. And as Pascal Vassalon was saying earlier on, they're very much looking to the front of the LMP2 field. 20 minutes of unscheduled pit time for the Toyota LMHs, the TSO10s, and a, a P2 car wins the race. That's their calculation. If, if, if you guys can have, or any of the P2 cars can have a, a fairly steady race and get to the end at the pace that you can run, then you can win overall. Does that put more pressure on you? Uh, it, it's not something you can think about. We went down that road in 2017 with about three hours to go, and it was horrendous. So it's not something you can think about at the moment. Um, but, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, then there, there will be a number of LMP2 cars from a number of teams that will be capable of doing it. Sam Hignett, the man at the head of Tunbridge Wells' finest sports car team, Jota. Sam Race, well, Race safely at the weekend. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joe. So Sam there representing the private day. It's very interesting views there, aren't there? Particularly about the, the saleability and the onward value of some of these LMDH cars. Before that, from Porsche, Pascal Zerlinden 
and Pascal Vassalon from Toyota, all taking time out from their busy Le Mans preparations to talk to us here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans in this Convergence programme. My thanks to them, to you for listening. It's not that far away, is it? 2023, we'll start to see how these different philosophies of the global prototype racing car actually interact together. In racing terms, that might as well be tomorrow. One thing you can be assured of, we'll keep you up to date with all of the developments on both sides of the LMH and LMDH coin over in IMSA via IMSAradio.com and here on radio-show.co.uk. Both parts of the Radio Show Limited network of channels. Have a great Le Mans and let's look forward to even better times in the future at the world's greatest motor race. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.